Welcome to Super Together. My name is James Cochran, and that gentleman you hear rustling papers in the background is the Reverend Tino Herrera, who is joining me today so that we can talk about race. Everybody's favorite topic, the one that is least stressful for all of us. Uh, Tino, you're with us today because you're brown, and I figured that might uh, make you an expert on the topic of race. Um, um, I know I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding. Maybe that's not even a good joke. Tino, uh, this is something that you've been excited to talk about. Why is why are you so excited to talk about race when everybody else wants to avoid that subject like the plague? Oh, well, it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you, Brother James. And uh, a couple things. Um, I'm not an expert, I would say. I am someone that is continuing to seek and understand and and to have to have the hard uh, conversations when it comes to race. Um, but another thing, you are right, I am brown. Uh, so I, I think for me, I, I, excitement is not really the word that I would I would say that, you know, hey, I'm excited to talk about race and, 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 and races uh, and racism in America and all that. Uh, but for more, it is something that has been uh, over the last five to six years has been uh, embedded in me as far as like, uh, I'm a minister of the gospel. Uh, this this needs to happen. We need to talk about uh, this, this social issue uh, because frankly, um, it, I have experienced it myself. Um, and it was funny because I grew up in a very strong uh, Catholic upbringing. I am uh, Latino, uh, I am millennial. Uh, and growing up, uh, I never, I, I would say from my remembrance, I, I never, never encountered or experienced any type of racism, at least to my face. Right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't until actually uh, I became a, uh, a pastor in the church that I was serving. Uh, and the interesting to note was that I was serving at this church as a youth pastor for about seven years. And I had left to go to seminary mm -hmm. and I came to be a leader to be appointed. And it was like the second Sunday where uh, I was really just, you know, welcoming people, you know, saying good morning to folks. Uh, uh, and one of the members of the congregation who was the sheriff of that county uh, came up to me and uh, I just said, good morning, sheriff. And he looked at me and said, you know, uh, he gave me a wad of dollar bills and was from the uh, volunteer basket that he was overseeing. And he gave me a water dollar bills and I looked confused and uh, he says uh, he pretended to pull out his gun. So his gun you know, was in the shape of his hand. And he said, we'll just pretend that you illegally crossed the border with that money. Now, granted, that was six years ago when I first experienced that. And I'll never forget, uh, it was on a Sunday morning, right? What does confrontation look like there? What is, uh, how do you handle that? And for me, I, I didn't even really know what to say, what to think. Um, I just knew that that one, that, that was racist. And uh, for me, I, I just knew that that was only the beginning, right? And mm -hmm. um, so that being said, over the years, being in ministry, working in communities, you know, I have not only seen it, uh, I've experienced it. And being, a, like I said, being a pastor, uh, especially for the church, I think it's something that uh, we need to, to really bring out into the light and really have hard conversations. Yeah. It is interesting as you describe that experience that many of us who are white 
have an awareness that those types of things happen. But what we lack as white folks is a really direct experience with those types of things. And so we find ourselves in this position um, rarely as perpetrators, I'd say. I'd say most people move through the world not in the, I mean, most of the white, white people you encounter don't act directly, overtly discriminatory or racist towards you. Um, however, I think that you and I would both say that they participate in a system. They are to some degree complicit in a system that allows actions like that to happen. Uh, you and I had an experience where we were going through a buffet line and, you know, a woman, uh, it was, it was a taco buffet or chili or something. I don't know. There were jalapenos and the woman said, stay away from those jalapenos or they'll send you back to Mexico. And, you know, and, and, and you and I had this experience and I think we both were like, did, did this person really just say that like to you, this, you know, a pastor and, um, and, and here's the thing, I look back on that experience regularly and think, what was the right thing for me to do? You mentioned, you know, this question uh, that you had in your interaction with this person at your old church. You know, what does it look like to confront those types of questions? And I think, so there's, so there's one set of questions, which is when we are on the receiving end of like directly racist behavior, uh, what do we do? When we are present in a situation where we see that unfolding what is our responsibility and what does it look like to do that well when um you know we so i, I think that there's a lot of those types of questions inherent in this conversation and i wanted to read this quote from robin D'Angelo, who is uh, the author of the book white fragility why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism racism is the norm rather than an aberration Feedback is key to our ability to recognize and repair our inevitable and often unaware collusion. And elsewhere she says, if I believe that only bad people are racist, I will feel hurt, offended, and shamed when an unaware racist assumption of mine is pointed out. If instead I believe that having racist assumptions is inevitable, but possible to change, I will feel gratitude when an unaware racist assumption is pointed out. Now I am aware of and can change that assumption. And so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this dynamic where we equate as people racism, the possession of racist assumptions, and then the way that those racist assumptions become manifest in our behaviors and interactions, we equate those with uh, morality and say that if I do these things, I'm a bad person. And the challenge with that is that it makes it really hard to talk about. Um, you know, if, if I it would be hard for me to challenge that woman in that place uh, with the jalapenos because if I say, hey, it's not okay for you to say things like that um, to to anybody, you know, to, to, to people of color, to people who are Latino, um, it's, it's here are the reasons why that's unacceptable. And the reason why is because she would not see that as me pointing out, hey, here are the ways in which you have been raised in a culture of racism which has given you a certain set of racist assumptions and those racist assumptions have led to you saying something that could be very easily construed as hurtful to this human being here. Um, she would instead think I'm just, I'm accusing her of being a bad person. Right. And so then the conversation starts taking place on moral ground rather than, you know, a systemic more behavioral ground. So how do you see that playing out and, and what are the ways that we work past that um, so that we can have conversations that are productive and less antagonistic? Yeah. 
So I'll give you an example. Um, well, let me just say this. When it when I think when it comes to racism, right, um, the only way to undo it is to is you have to constantly identify it, right? You have to describe it and then you have to dismantle it. Right. So I always say, like, you got to you gotta identify it, you got to describe it. And then that's how you just and you got to figure out a way how to dismantle it. Right. So it's like bringing it into the light. Uh, about a year ago, uh, last summer, around this time, I was, uh, you know, doing my thing as a pastor, greeting folks again on a, on a Saturday evening. And one of the volunteer security guards uh, came up right. I think it was like three minutes prior to service starting. And I was talking to uh, some congregants and he put his arm around me and said, hey, is Pastor Tino giving you a hard time? Speaking directly to these congregants and they're like, oh, no, 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 we love Pastor Tino, yada, yada, yada. And then he says, he goes on to say, he goes, well, we know how all those Mexicans are down south causing trouble. We don't want to be causing, we don't want to have Tino be causing any trouble up here. Now, again, uh, similar situation, right? What does confrontation look like? I was angry, I was upset, frustrated. I actually met with that man uh, that following Monday and he apologized. Uh, and the first thing he said was, I'm not a racist, right? And mm -hmm. I was interested in that. So let me ask you this, I'm gonna take off the pastor's cap. I said, do you believe that brown people are causing trouble down South? Do you believe that as a brown person, you, you think I'm causing trouble here at the church? He could not answer it, right? He, could, he couldn't give me an answer. And it got me thinking, right, that, you know, I think that's one of the problems, right, when we hear this word, you know, I'm not a racist, um, you know, but then again, neither am I aggressively against racism, right? Uh, I always say there's no neutrality in, race, in the racism struggle. Um, we're, mm -hmm. we're constantly trying to identify it and trying to put it out there, right? And I always say the opposite of racist isn't not racist. It is It is what I've learned from a professor, uh, as Ibrahim Zandi put it, um, it is anti-racist, right? That means that we are mm -hmm. against all forms of racism, policy, mm -hmm. uh, people that you know, spread hate. So we have to be aware of that. So the next thing is, is how do we, how do we really... How do we really look into that? Well, I think first thing is, is what we're doing right now, right? We're having these hard conversations. And that comes with first, I think, the work of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so I I think we have to be honest with ourselves and looking back at our lives and, and what we grew up in, our culture, the times that we that we were living in, what we what we gained from our parents and our grandparents. Uh, I, I know that doing the work on myself, I had to realize, you know, that. Uh, my my grandparents had racist narratives, had racist mm -hmm. ideologies, but I, I actually heard them say things that I didn't know back then was racist. But now looking at it today, I say, yeah, that was that was really racist, right? And some of that stuff was embedded in in the way I I saw people, I, I the way I believed in certain policies, and so it wasn't until I began to do the work on myself of really asking myself, okay, you know, what who am I? What what do I believe? Uh, is this really you know, something that is right compared to what I believe when, when I look into my faith. And so then I started doing that work, but then also getting with other people that didn't look like me, that didn't necessarily say have the same beliefs that I had, right? And really diving in and wanting to learn more. Now, that's difficult, right? Because we want to defend our beliefs. We want to defend our actions. We want to defend what has been given to us over time. But I always go into saying, you know, go into a conversation uh, with listening ears, with yeah. an empathetic heart, with an understanding, and hoping to gain some sort of awareness and knowledge that will that will change you. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. So it sounds like, you know, part of the experience you're describing is that, you know, the, the implicit biases that we experience are compounded when they're not challenged. And when we don't have the hard conversations, when we don't expose ourselves to people and relationships who are different from us, uh, then those biases won't get challenged. And that just becomes sort of hardwired into how we experience the world. Um, so step one is sort of breaking yourself outside of that zone where you can begin to have relationships. The um, I'll do this other, another Robin D'Angelo quote. While implicit bias is always at play because all humans have bias, inequality can occur simply through homogeneity. If I am not aware of the barriers you face, then I won't see them, much less be motivated to remove them. Nor will I be motivated to remove the barriers if they provide an advantage to which I feel entitled. You are an important part of my life, Tino, and your family is an important part of my life. And part of that is because I love and I care about you. And it's really important for me that my girls have relationships with people of color as they grow up. Um, and that they see like, hey, you know, you beautiful little white girl are going to experience the world differently than Samaya. You know, your your relationship to the world is going to be different. You know, I, I don't know how long ago it was, um, a few months ago, several months ago, um, you know, your daughter had a really terrible experience at school where where she was treated in a way that was discriminatory, uh, you know, by some of her peers. Like, I can't remember the specific interaction, but but here's the reality. Um, if my daughter goes through her whole, whole life without relationships with people of color and doesn't become aware of those kinds of experiences, then she's not going to have an appreciation or understanding of what it is to be a person of color and how her sort of, you know, moving through the world as a little white girl, how that's going to make her life different. Um, and so I, I, I think that that is, you know, priority number one is we start to build relationships. And I think the other thing that you said that it's, that really matters is if that, you know, racist com comment happens on a Sunday and then you try to have a conversation with them on Monday, that conversation is going to go a lot better if that's somebody you're close to, you know, mm -hmm. you, you calling me out on something that I do that's racist, something that I do that is that reflects some inherent bias that I have, is something that I'm going to be far more open to receiving than if it's somebody that I don't know, somebody that I think is just being antagonistic towards me. Um, so I think that part of what you and I are calling people to that are listening to this, if you want to have better conversations about race and how race is a reality in the world we live in, develop relationships with people who are different, with people who are uh, have different skin color than you, with people who have different understandings of the way that race works, with people of different political backgrounds and all of those different types of things. And in those relationships, that's the only way that we're going to be able to form that. So we're sitting down, we're having this conversation. What does it look like to challenge someone well? You know, and again, there's a spectrum here, right? I mean, how close you are to this person really matters. Uh, but how do you do that in a way that is productive? That's a very good question. I think I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like, right? How to how to have these uh, conversations and then, you know, put a challenge out there. I, I will say personally, um, and I'm going to just use my vocational ministry here, you know, someone who is a minister, you know, a pastor of a, of, a, of a local church, right? I believe the, the local church as a whole should be doing more to, to speak out against racism. Normally we'll put 
a couple of words, a couple of sentences together and we'll say, you know, that we're against all forms of racism. Well, OK, that's true. But are you doing the work? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. as I believe the church really needs to do some soul searching itself uh, because uh, it has supported the status quo. Right. If you look back on its mm-hmm. history, it supported slavery, it supported segregation, it preached against any attempt of especially uh, of, of black uh, women and men to stand on their own two feet. I mean, that, that's embedded in our history. Mm-hmm. We have to acknowledge that. So any gospel that does not speak to the issue of social issues um, when it comes to race and and uh, health care, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going further here, but an injustice mm-hmm. um, is and setting them free in the name of Jesus Christ is, is not the gospel. And so mm-hmm. I would like, you know, I think the one thing is, is that our churches have to have to break out of the, their comfort zone and understand that yeah, this is going to make people feel uncomfortable. It's going to uh, probably get them angry. And some people are probably going to leave, right? Because they'll use that narrative that I'm not a racist, right? I, I, I'm colorblind. Mm-hmm. I don't see color. I see, you know, it's all being one person together, right? But again, that's harmful uh, verbiage, even though it may be coming from a good place, uh, good intentions, it's it's not helpful to what we're really trying to to counter here uh, in our country and in our communities. So, again, we all have a lot of work to do. And then, but you're right on one thing, right? It's easier for you and I to have this conversation, and it is for you know for me to have one, you know, with someone who I don't know really well. But if it does happen, I, I think you just have to speak truth to power in a very gracious mm-hmm. way that makes sense. So mm-hmm. that's, that's not appropriate. That You can't say that, right? I've had those conversations already with certain people where, hey, you know, I remember uh, when I was uh, dating Samara and uh, the secretary, this is back home in Oklahoma, and the secretary uh, was, was I was walking out of my office and she goes, hey, tell me about your colored girlfriend. Uh, and I said, well, okay, I don't know you that well, um, but um, by the way, everyone who's listening, my, my wife is black. Um, and so, you know, I said, how do I handle this? Right. Because I can't ignore it. Right. We, mm-hmm. we want to bring, you know, truth to this. We got to be able to bring light to this. And so I said, uh, you know, I told her she had her uh, her iPhone out and I said, hey, let me ask you something. I said, you love your iPhone. Right. And she goes, oh, yeah, I love my iPhone. Yeah. yeah. I said, uh, would you ever go back to a flip phone? And she goes, no, I don't think we can ever go back to that because her excuse was that was the way she was brought up. That was how she heard, you know, her family identify people of color, right? Um, African-Americans. And so the what I was trying to use was that you would never go back to a flip phone. There's no way you could survive with a flip phone in today's culture, in today's world, right? And she was absolutely. And I said, so that being said, what you thought was right, you thought was helpful back then in the 60s and 70s, well, it, it's not helpful today. It shouldn't have been helpful back then, but obviously I was trying to get to the point right then and there. Yeah, saying, yeah. You can't say that today, all right? So don't say that again. Um, and she was very, you know, I, I thought she was going to get, I thought she was going to push me back, I thought she was going to counter, but she goes, you know what, thank you for coming, giving me that that information. Um, I will never say that again. I'm so sorry that, that I offended you. So I think Again, you just got to be able to bring that out to the light and, and bring truth yeah. to power. I will say this, um, you know, I, one of one of the folks that I really admire and, and we all admire in our country is, is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And he has a very powerful quote uh, because he was speaking about this prophetic vision that he had about the beloved community. And the beloved community was coming together. Uh, and this this vision that he had was a society based on justice and equal opportunity and and more importantly a love 
uh, of, of one's fellow human beings, right? That we would see each other in the image of Christ. And so he writes that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. And so I know that's kind of lengthy, but, uh, you know, you can look it up. But basically what he's saying is that is that love and power come together in a way that is with humility and with grace. And even loving on those folks that have made mistakes in the past, you know, we're trying to restore both sides here, if that makes sense. It's, it's a difficult but necessary path uh, that we're on, one where we challenge each other, where we challenge ourselves. Um, where we approach people with the best intentions. Um, I think that part of the reason why we get defensive when we're being confronted with ways in which we're um, acting in, in racist ways, we get defensive because um, we might assume bad intentions in other people. So if I, if I see someone else being racist... I might assume that they're a bad person. And so if someone accuses me of being racist, I might think, well, they're saying that I'm a bad person. Robin D'Angelo again, the simplistic idea that racism is limited to individual intentional acts committed by unkind people is at the root of virtually all white defensiveness on this topic. You know, and if we're, if we're putting together a playlist here of um, how can people approach this well, I think step one is recognize that the only real way for you to have productive conversations about how race is a reality in our world is to be in relationship with people who are different from you. So ask yourself that question. Am I surrounded only by white people? If you're a white person, if you're a person of color, am I surrounded only by people of color? And say that if, if, if we're going to be a part of change, then we need to be in a space that allows us to have conversations that break those barriers. And then we have to say that we acknowledge racism as a reality and one that hurts us and hurts everybody and that doesn't make us bad people you know if i think about you know i'm i'm 30 something years old you're 30 something years old you know racism has been around for hundreds and hundreds and, and potentially thousands and thousands of years and for us to say that we bear the fullness of that responsibility isn't fair. It's not fair to us. It's not fair to the, the broader human story that we're a part of. Racism is part of who we are because racism has been a part of American culture, Western culture for a really long time. And we have to just acknowledge that it doesn't make us bad people that we carry around these implicit biases. What makes us bad people or what has the potential to make us people who hurt other people is when we ignore it, is when we pretend like it's not a reality that we have to pay attention to. You know, so having that, you know, having those conversations with grace, um, acknowledging, you know, the power differentials that you see in play. The reality that we we often find ourselves stuck in is that we are going to be energetic about this, but it's only going to be in one direction. You know, uh, we might be willing and open to have a conversation with somebody about how the way that they're acting is experienced by us, but they might not be. They might not be open to having that conversation and that's okay. That doesn't mean we don't, that doesn't mean we just act like it's all right. Everything's, everything's peachy. We say, hey, listen, I want to tell you that this thing wasn't okay. And I'm totally fine to have a conversation with you about it. But they, that might not be something that they're open to. You know, I, I love one of the things that you said about going into a conversation with listening ears um, and with an attitude of grace. 
and saying, I just, I want to be able to learn what I can learn from this. And we might not be able to change everybody's mind. You know, um, if someone sits down from you and the first thing they say is I'm not a racist, <laughs> that's going to be a hard conversation, right? Cause that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's somebody that might not be willing to hear the ways in which they behaved that were hurtful or unproductive. I think that part of what we're naming, and, and this is, this is a conversation maybe that you and I can revisit over time. Um, Part of the reason why we're having this conversation now is related to Ahmad Arbery. Um, and actually, just in this last week, uh, another woman um, who was killed in her home by police officers who went to the wrong door, uh, that situation was brought to light. Um, just another kind of in a long line of people of color being murdered on, on the spectrum from accidentally, negligently to maliciously and um, pretty horrifically. Uh, I guess you could say that it's all horrific and tragic, but when those situations become more visible, when they become more public, there's a lot of difficulty in how how those conversations happen. Because again, it feels like the stakes are, you know, you have to have a particular view or you're a bad person. Um, but I think part of what motivated you to, you know, want to have this conversation with me is it felt like, hey, we need to have these conversations. And yes, these conversations are hard. Um, but we don't need to be having these conversations at each other, past each other, um, in a way that's aggressive. We can have these conversations in this, in the context of a beloved community. We can have these conversations in a space that allows for us to say, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to understand what happened. Uh, but fundamentally there needs to be space for people to share their experiences. And what you find is that the more people share their experiences, you say like, man, this is, um, this is not okay for this to have happened in the way that it happened. What responsibility do we have as people who are white to do that differently? What responsibility do you have as a person who is Latino, as a person who is a pastor, as a person who is a, you know, parent of a black young woman? Like how, like we all have a role to play in the way that these things unfold. And I think asking those questions becomes more and more important when these things come up and they, and they're going to keep coming up and these conversations are going to need to continue to happen. Um, so it's possible that you and I might just circle back to this topic a hundred more times over the, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't have to continue to happen forever, but that we'll have to keep circling back to this until we get to a place where we can say, you know, we're at a national cultural level. We are infused with this conversation. I think that the struggle is going to be a long one, but I do think that it's going to start moving toward justice. And I think that the only way that it does bend towards justice is when human beings can sit together and say, we, we see the injustice and we want to challenge the injustice uh, at the individual relational level, at the societal, uh, political level, and um, that those conversations can happen in a way that isn't vitriolic, but is actually you know, productive and meaningful. Uh, Tino, as we wrap this conversation up, things that you you felt like you wanted to share uh, with our community as it relates to having productive conversations around race that we didn't get to? No, I think that's it right now. Um, I, I would love, you know, like I said, this is, this is how it starts, right? Is that we just open it up. We, we continue to talk about it, um, understanding that it's, it's not easy, but now more than ever uh, for such a time as this, um, we, we got to call it out for what it is. And uh, I'm going to do everything in my power, my God given power to continue to, to pursue that. Okay. Well, Tino, uh, folks can get in touch with you at cor.org. They can find information about the the faith community that you're a part of. 
you can get in touch with me at talkingwithjames.com. You can go to compassionfix.com to get connected with Ginger. And until next time, uh, get out there, have healthy conversations. And Tina, would you encourage our audience to be well? Yes. It's, uh, James, again, thank you for allowing me to just be a part of this uh, this morning. And uh, for those that are listening, uh, continue. I mean, God continue just to, to shine forth light. Uh, and may we continue to bring forth peace. Be well. Be well.